Today, I speak with noted researcher and scholar Ben Franta about two articles he has written that add to his growing archive of seminal work on climate change. Ben tells us how the fossil fuel industry paid economists to join scientists in denying the true nature of the fossil fuel industry's destruction of the environment. Economists argued that even if some science were correct, implementing change would be too costly. This became a powerful tool to stall and kill climate change legislation. Ben also talks about how communities have tried to sue fossil fuel companies for damages incurred by such misinformation and disinformation. In sum, we learn what the industry has done and how ordinary people and municipalities can fight back. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. Last year, you published two very powerful essays. One was called Weaponizing Economics, Big Oil, Economic Consultants, and Climate Denial Policy, which came out in environmental politics. And the second piece was co-authored with Jessica Wentz, entitled Liability for Public Deception, Licking Fossil Fuel, Disinformation to Climate Damages, which appeared in the Scholarship Archive of Columbia Law School from the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law. So together they make a very powerful pair of articles. In the first, you document how economic consultants, rather than climate scientists, came to guide our climate policies over a course of decades. And in the second, you explain how fossil fuel companies might be sued for endangering the public health by spewing disinformation. So the two work together. One shows how misinformation and disinformation has been promulgated by economists in the pay of corporations who want to kill or at least slow down climate change policies and how these corporations may or may not ever pay a penalty for those acts. So could you walk us through the main findings and arguments of the first piece, and then we'll get to the second. Sure thing. You know, that piece actually has a really interesting origin story. I was doing my PhD in history at Stanford, in history of science, and part of my research methodology was to download every single news article I could find on these online news databases about climate change and the American Petroleum Institute. I was doing a lot of research about the American Petroleum Institute at that time. And what I would do is just order them chronologically and then just read through them. And it would take many days or weeks to do that because it'd be thousands of pages. But what that allowed for was to get a really detailed ending of what the talking points were from the industry and all the battles they were engaged with over time to fight climate policy. As I did that, I noticed that often the the industry would hire economic consultants to write these reports to fight proposed climate policies. So things like even when the early international negotiations about climate change were being discussed in the late 1980s, early 1990s, the American Petroleum Institute was hiring economists to argue that this would be too expensive, that we shouldn't control fossil fuels, and that climate change actually wasn't that bad, and we should just adapt to it and not worry about it. Same thing when carbon taxes were proposed in the early 1990s, and then with the Kyoto Protocol in the late 90s, and just it just kept going. And what I noticed was that it was the same individual people being hired by the industry time and time again. So there's a small group of economists who were just the go-to economists for the industry. And then, this was 2017, I think, 
I was watching TV and then President Trump announced that he was going to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement. And one of his justifications was that this would cost way too much money, that it would wreck the U.S. economy. And to back that up, he cited a report written by a consultancy firm. And I looked up the report because I thought this doesn't make any sense. This Paris Agreement is not even legally binding. It's not going to have an economic you know, impact, at least not the way that President Trump was saying. So I looked up that report and it was written by actually one of the same authors that had been doing this for years and years and years and actually more than two decades by that point. And so that tipped me off that this wasn't just a historical curiosity, but it was something that was still happening. It was still playing a major role in U.S. and global climate policy. And basically nobody knew about it, or at least not a lot of people. So I started to go back and track what were the activities of this group of economists over time. And basically, they were involved in every major climate policy fight from the very beginning. Wow. And the name of the consulting firm is Charles Rivers. And what struck me is that over and over again, they're cited as an independent consulting firm. Let them get away with that without blinking an eye. Why did they not do due diligence and figure out if they were truly independent? It's a really good question. You know, if when we look at Exxon Mobil's or Exxon at the time, their advertorials in the New York Times, mm-hmm. for example, this is in the 1990s. And a lot of these advertorials are saying climate change is not that bad, or we should slow down climate policy. We need to do more research. And that story had been pretty well told before by scholars like Naomi Oreskes and others who talked about this merchants of doubt effect of you know, talking about uncertainty in climate science and things like that. But what was coupled with that scientific denial was this economic part. So in those Exxon advertorials, it would say, climate science is still uncertain. We need to do more research. And an independent economic analysis done by the Charles River Associates Mm. says that this is going to cost a lot of money. You know, if someone on the street were just to read that, they would think, oh, these are independent scholars or researchers coming to these conclusions. But in reality, they are being hired by the fossil fuel industry itself, basically to do this again and again and again. And so it was really that two-prong approach of, we don't know if it's happening or not, and it's too expensive to act on. That was the industry's rhetorical strategy for a long time, and parts of that still exist. And so one of my hopes was that this sort of research could help counteract that activity that's still ongoing today. Right. I mean, the last thing you said also struck me a lot in your article when you say that tandem became so naturalized in the public education. And it was really a case of the tail wagging the dog in some respects that it became, in your words, I think, common sense. I mean, it just became a fusion that was taken to be natural. And we all know it costs too much money. The other thing your article does so well is to point out, it's not just a matter of economics, but bad economics. Could you talk a little bit about how even the economics was skewed and partial and incomplete, but passed for being independent and complete. Absolutely. It's really an amazing story because what the industry figured out is that it could pay economists to use a particular model, a particular economic ideology and approach, which is actually pretty widespread, this 
market efficiency assumptions and so on, but they could pay economists to take that approach and would always give the answer that the industry wanted. It would always say this is really expensive and it's too expensive. And they can make it arbitrarily expensive essentially by playing with some of the parameters in the model. So that's what they did. You know, this wasn't even good science because it exaggerated the cost of controlling fossil fuels and it completely ignored the cost of climate change itself. So it was impossible to even say, in theory, even whether it was worth it to enact this policy or not. But what the industry wanted was just the scientific appearing ammunition to, to fight back these policies. And what's really alarming, I think, to me at least, is that it wasn't just the economic consultancies that were following these methods, but it eventually became many of the academic institutions who also were funded and are funded by the industry. So there are climate modeling groups who are basically using the same methodologies that have a lot of influence over the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and just climate policy in general. And often they're funded by groups like the American Petroleum Institute and oil and gas companies. And they're basically doing the same thing. You know, maybe they're doing it a little more rigorously. I don't know. They're basically saying, taking the same approach as those consultants. And so I think that's also really concerning. And that's something that really should be investigated and remedied if possible. Right. Jennifer Jacquet has that wonderful book, The Playbook. And I think she calls the formation you were talking about, the arsenal. And we'll get to that at the end of the interview, because I want to bring in the Dwarf School. But before we go there, I want to, especially these days with our U.S. Congress completely dysfunctional, it was really actually moving to me when you listed all those bipartisan bills for climate change, when people were actually working together, that this strategy killed. Could you talk about some of the things that some of the damage these tactics did to actually decent pieces of legislation? Oh, yeah. From the very beginning, the climate policies that we think of as being cutting edge have been around as ideas for over 30 years. Things like carbon tax. I mean, a carbon tax was proposed in 1993 in the United States, and it was killed through this combination of, hey, this is way too expensive and we don't even know if climate change is happening, this sort of strategy. So none of, basically none of the policy discussion today is very new. Maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but a lot of it is not new. And so it's been this history of something gets proposed and it gets defeated or, or so watered down that it has no meaningful impact. And it's not just the U.S. domestic legal scene, but it's also the international negotiations. Mm -hmm. We see the oil industry, oil and gas industry, taking the same strategy there too and watering down things like the U.N., climate meetings. We see that again this year. The Kyoto Protocol, which was supposed to be a legally binding agreement to re reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but it, the U.S. pulled out and it was so watered down to begin with that it didn't really make that big of a difference. And then in the 2000s, we saw these cap and trade bills being proposed in the U.S., which are, it's just basically just another way of pricing carbon, having a carbon tax, essentially. But those were also defeated through this strategy. So it's policy after policy after policy. And the damage is, of course, enormous and irreversible. And I think that's one of the really important things to keep in mind, that the longer we wait, the more emissions occur, more global warming occurs, more damage is done, and that cannot be reversed. And the industry knows that. 
And we know they know that because of their internal documents from even the 1970s and the 1980s. And some of those documents talk about what needed to be done to avoid really severe global warming. And they basically concluded that the industry needed to start moving away from fossil fuels then, right away, in the 1980s, in order to avert severe global warming. So the industry knew that, and yet it continued to intentionally delay progress using deceitful tactics for decades, fully knowing the enormous catastrophic damage, even in the industry's own words in their internal documents, they use the word catastrophic damage that it would be that would be put onto the world as a result. So this is really, really important. I can't think of a bigger instance of corporate malfeasance at a massive scale. Well, that gets us right to your second article. I want to insert the fact that a couple of weeks ago, we had Bill McKibben on the show, and he was talking about the ray of hope and so many people finding out information, the kinds of information that you're providing and other scholars and activists. People are becoming enlightened to this deception. But as Bill said, and as you tapped into a second ago, it's the time that we've lost, the time that we've lost that is so crucial. And what you point out, it's not just a matter of killing a bill, but distracting our attention from actual possibilities. So talk about the liability piece, because you think, well, if these things are exposed, they should be A, made to pay, and B, there should be some sort of deterrent, I guess. That's the thing I'm getting at. So talk about the liability that you wrote. Absolutely. So, you know, a lot of this research informs legal action now climate lawsuits against big oil and gas companies in particular. And so a colleague of mine and I, Jessica Wentz at Columbia University, we did an analysis of just what kind of liability did other corporate deceivers face? You know, we're talking about asbestos and, and tobacco, most recently the opioids litigation in the U.S., and what can that teach us about climate litigation and liability for this long history of deception that we now know is it's very well documented now that the fossil fuel industry engaged in. When basically we found, yeah, legally, there's nothing standing in the way of these companies being held liable, those false and misleading statements that they put into the public sphere and told to the public for years and years and years. There was one wrinkle in our analysis, which is kind of interesting and important, I think. And that's that, at least in the U.S., lobbying activity is so heavily protected as political speech that that probably is not going to be a basis for liability. All the statements directed at the general public, at consumers, things like that, which we know the industry did for decades, those are fair game. And this is an enormous problem that one industry, very powerful one, maybe the most powerful industry in the history of capitalism, arguably, knowingly decided to thrust this emergency, this crisis onto the world in order to make more money for a few more decades. And the question is, what's the punishment or the compensation or the remedy for that? And those facts are becoming clearer and clearer due to, to research and journalists are finding more and more about this sordid history. But what are the courts going to do about it? And that's a huge question. And then just the last part of that is it's not just the historical deception, it's the ongoing deception too. It's the greenwashing 
that these companies are engaging in. We see all the time ads from ExxonMobil talking about doing things in a low carbon way, about carbon capture, about biofuels. We see this all over the place. And historically, this is a strategy that the industry really leaned into around the turn of the millennium. Around 20 years ago, they moved away from overtly denying the existence of climate change and moved towards saying, we're the solution to it and we're on it and we're fixing it. And basically, they gave the public false reassurances. Don't worry about the problem. The tobacco industry did this too. They said, don't worry about it. We're fixing the problem. This isn't so bad for you. We're solving it. We're making low tar cigarettes. And it's exactly what the fossil fuel industry is doing now by saying, oh, we're making low carbon of oil and gas, basically, which is completely untrue. And so that's a huge problem, too, because it's not just a cute deception or trick. It's also a massive waste of time and focus. So you lull people into a false sense of security and people think the problem is being solved when it's not and time passes. And again, that's the real loss as more time goes on. We have more irreversible damage. And so it's really profoundly important that we put a stop to that greenwashing also. It's funny because our listeners can't see my expression, but Ben can because we're on. And I'm just smiling as you say this because, again, we keep on leaning into the the last topic, which is the door school here at Stanford, which is greenwashing in the billions. But before we get there, I still want to linger a bit on the liability piece, which is really great, and ask you two questions. One is, Could you talk a little bit more specifically about the different possible legal levers that can be pulled? Also looking back at the opioid crisis and lead and whatnot. And then also talk about, we talk about the law, but talk about the politics in which legal action is going to be embedded and the struggle between the political and and the legal. Absolutely. The legal and the political and the social are, are all intertwined. In some sense, The law and lawsuits in particular are how many social facts become real, how they become proved and established. We know the tobacco industry lied for so many decades, in large part because of lawsuits that proved that fact and established that fact. And so now that those facts are being litigated right now in courts across the U.S. with regard to climate change and oil and gas companies. So there's a couple different legal strategies that are being used. One is to claim money damages from climate change. So climate change both causes damage from whether it's heat waves or sea level rise or flooding or droughts or fires or other things, tropical storms that intensify more rapidly. All of those things cause real economic damage. And so that needs to be paid for. And somebody has to pay for that regardless of what happens, whether that's the taxpayers of a state or a city or whether that burden falls on individuals. But there's an argument here, a legal one, as well as a moral one, that at least some of that should be paid for by the fossil fuel companies. Those companies knew this was going to happen and they essentially ensured that it would happen in order to make more money for themselves. So that's the argument that they should pay for that. Then there's also this, the greenwashing, which is more of a consumer protection angle, saying these companies are lying to consumers about what they're doing as companies. Like they're painting themselves as green when they're not. They're saying they're investing in renewable energy when they're not really doing that much at all. And they're deceiving people about their products. They're saying natural gas is low carbon. They're saying that they're using carbon capture when they're not really doing that in any meaningful way. 
So those are two of the levers that are often combined. And those were the strategies that were used in tobacco litigation as well. It was the public cost coupled with the deception Mm -hmm. consumers combined together. So it's the same strategy being used. We're seeing some other claims being brought. There's an interesting statute in in the U.S. called RICO, which is basically an anti-corruption statute that was used against the tobacco industry. And it's for cases when it's not just one company that's doing something unlawful, but many of them working together to do that. And that carries even higher penalties. And so that's being deployed as well in some cases. And that's just in the U.S. We're seeing lawsuits about climate change all over the world under different theories, and some of them are human rights cases. Some are more about what's a a proper business plan for these companies under duty of care laws. So it's really a global phenomenon. There's a lot of creativity in the space in terms of legal strategy. Right. Well, I hope something comes of it. Now it's time to talk about the door school because... And the way we have it bracketed, I forget what year it is, but you did do a, a short piece for the New Republic, I think, talking about the door school at Stanford. And then your latest piece that you sent me is about greenwashing. So can you put those two pieces together and bring in what you talked about previously in terms of what Jennifer calls the arsenal, the academic piece as well? Yeah. Well, there's a great handbook from the 1970s all about how do regulated industries co-opt the regulation system and defeat it and make it work for them. And in the front of the book, this book, by the way, was written by a few Stanford professors. In the front of the book, there's a series of recommendations. Of These are the most important things you need to do if you want to avoid or control regulation that you're facing. And one of them says, co-opt the experts. And it's all about you give money to academic institutions and to researchers because you can influence what questions they ask. They'll get a better view, more favorable view of the industry, you're definitely going to stop them from actively testifying against you or writing against you in public, generally speaking. And so this was a standard strategy used by many different industries for a very long time. This is from the 70s, but industries have been doing this for a long time. You know, the lead industry did it before that and so on. So it's not really surprising, perhaps, that the oil and gas industry would be trying to influence through funding academic institutions, especially research about climate solutions and climate change. And that's what we've seen. The Door School continues to accept money from fossil fuel companies, even though it really doesn't have to, arguably, since it has such a generous endowment already. But this is a long-standing pattern at Stanford and other places like MIT and Harvard where those institutions are taking fossil fuel money. And in some cases, the climate and energy research programs there are funded mostly by fossil fuel companies, or in some cases, entirely by them. So there is an enormous conflict of interest and an enormous constraint on academic freedom when the purpose of the research is directly conflicting with the business interests of the funder. So that is obviously going to constrain what sort of research can be done. And so it's a huge problem. And just to historically contextualize it a little bit, again, we see this happening, especially starting in the late 90s, early 2000s. And that's when the industry shifted its strategy and tried to make itself look like the solution. And it started pouring money into climate and energy research programs, creating new ones, and often these programs would focus on solutions that the industry liked. 
things like natural gas, biofuels, which haven't really done anything to replace fossil fuels at all, cap and trade systems, which have been completely ineffective at replacing fossil fuels, carbon capture, which has justified even more fossil fuel expansion and hasn't been effective at reducing emissions really at all. So what aren't they funding? They're not funding that much in the things that they're scared of, renewables, electric vehicles, things like that, that, that really threaten their market share. And they're certainly not paying for historical and social scientific research to understand the history of climate obstruction and deception, which they've been engaged in. Well, a few things. There's so many things to talk about, but you mentioned academic freedom. And of course, some of the people that are greenwashing cite their academic freedom. In other words, they, they use yeah. that as, as, as a way to defend their, their practices as well. So it cuts both ways. And also the fact that the university itself, Stanford, becomes, it lends its brand to this greenwashing. It's not just the door school, but it's the, spa the institutional space within, within which the door school is located. And I really wanted to talk to you, since you were a student here, about how, what kind of messaging this sends graduate students who are going to the door school to learn this. And we had Yanai and Belinda and June on the show a few weeks ago, too. And they spoke about this mixed message that they get about going into a very good, a well-intentioned or seemingly well-intentioned endeavor and then being given mixed messages by their advisors. Could you talk a little bit about the effect on precisely the generation whose idealism is we're, we're relying on to get us out of this? Absolutely. You know, it's one of the main purposes of funding educational institutions is to influence the students, the views they have about issues and the views they have about, about whole industries or companies. We know the oil and gas industry has done that since the 1960s, at least in elementary schools and in high schools across the country. A few years ago, I was doing some archival research. And I found a copy of some minutes from a board meeting of the American Petroleum Institute in the 1960s. And in there it said, hey, Here's an update. Our curriculum is being used by the majority of American high schools now. So that this was indoctrination at a, at a large scale. So the industry is well familiar with that PR strategy and extends all the way to the collegiate level of, of course. And so students come and they see the sponsored research, the sponsored spaces, the branding, then recruitment occurs. Sometimes their professors are funded by the industry, so their professors are more likely to slant their views or just have those views because they might have gotten that funding because they had those views in the first place. But it's going to shape many generations of leaders in many different fields because a place like Stanford educates those kinds of people. And for students who really want to make a difference on climate change, and it's a no-brainer. Obviously, it's been known for decades that if one has to pick one thing to do to solve climate change, it's replace fossil fuels. And if they come in and they see, oh, my professor is being paid by a fossil fuel company or, or supported, and all this stuff is paid for by fossil fuel companies. And if I ever say anything bad about an oil company, it like makes people uncomfortable because that's where the money is coming from. That's sending hugely mixed signals. And really, when Stanford does that, it it hurts its own brand because it, it, it's missing an opportunity for leadership that mm. it otherwise could have 
quite handily. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I was thinking as you were speaking of the last time we met was at this conference, people were talking about the same kind of tactics by tobacco companies, gun manufacturers, the sugar industry, all using these multiple levers of culture, education, advertisement. So the message is inescapable that all these things are as they want us to see them. And that's why independent research, truly independent research, is so important. And that's why they have to kill it. So my last question to you, Ben, is what's next for you? What, what are your next projects? What are you up to? Yeah. So right now I'm building a research group at Oxford, at the University of Oxford in the UK, and it's called the Climate Litigation Lab. And it's a group that does research to help inform climate lawsuits around the world. So we do scientific research, we do investigative and social scientific research, we do legal research, we bring together evidence, we bring together legal strategies that might be used as well. And so this is a really cool group and we just established it a year ago. We have over 20 people working with us now, so it's growing really rapidly. There's a huge amount of interest working in the space. But one of the, one of the key questions that I have been trying to quantify or analyze or figure out for the last few years is how much less global warming would we have today had the industry done the right thing? So if we go back to the early 1980s and we look at the industry's internal documents, they modeled out themselves how much global warming would occur under business as usual conditions. And if they made efforts to move away wow. from fossil, they had all that modeled out. So they had all the information they needed to make a decision and they chose the more destructive one for the world and the one they thought would be more profitable for themselves. But the question is, if they had done the right thing, if they'd done the right thing, then arguably maybe they shouldn't face any liability today. The history would be completely different and the trajectory of global warming would have been. And so that's something I've been working on is to try to figure that out using the industry's own documents because that's essentially them owning that analysis. And it's hard for them to argue against that. But there are actually quite a few studies in the late 70s and early 80s that analyzed this issue of how much warming would be avoidable with quick action. And so that's something that I'm looking at. And I think that the short answer or conclusion is that those decades of deception and delay that we're now so familiar with, they transformed global warming from a minor problem into a into an emergency, into a crisis. And that's the difference. And that, that is an enormous difference. And it was foreseeable. And that's what the industry chose to make happen, essentially. And I think that that realization, as people get that, I think it's going to shape understanding of the problem because we know the most effective message ever tested to do with climate change is they knew and they lied. It's more effective than polar bears. It's more effective than save your children. When people learn they knew and they lied, then they want some accountability. And they also start to see the, the global warming problem as more serious, interestingly. And so I think it's a really important fact or a kind of mega fact oh. framing of the entire problem to communicate to the public. That, that is ingenious. And that is the missing piece. That's exactly the missing piece because everything else is just inferential or we can imagine. But to have that evidence, and since they provided it for us inadvertently, oh, that is incredible. We obviously wish you the very best. And please 
come back again when your lab has done some more things. We'd like to have an open door policy for you all because this is so important and you explain it in such a powerful and lucid way. It's so compelling. So you, you tell me that the sun's going down in the UK, so I will let you scurry back to wherever you need to be. But I can't thank you enough, Ben, for being here. Thank you, David. I really appreciate it. And I'm honored to join you. Thanks so much. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.